Today's episode takes us north to Saskatoon, Canada. Neil Stonechild was a 17-year-old citizen of the Salto Nation, which is part of the Ojibwe or Anishinaabe people. In November of 1990, Neil was found in the outskirts of his hometown, dead from hypothermia. While this may seem like a one-off case of someone caught outside in the elements for too long, Neil's story is part of a larger story of racially motivated injustices and police corruption in what would become known as the Saskatoon Freezing Deaths, or the Starlight Tours. This is the Red Justice Project. The setting of our story today takes place in Saskatoon, which is the largest city in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan, with a population of just over 250,000. And for American listeners, a province in Canada is kind of like a state in the U.S. And for more context, the indigenous population of the province of Saskatchewan is about 16%, and the indigenous population of Saskatoon is about 12%. For comparison, the metropolitan area with the highest percentage of indigenous identifying people is the greater Phoenix Mesa Scottsdale area with almost 6% of the population identifying as Native American. So I would consider the city of Saskatoon to have a pretty sizable indigenous population at 12%. And these are kind of important demographics um, for you all to know as we get further along into our story. So now that we've given you a little context on the setting of our story, I just want to share a little bit of background information on Neil. So as we mentioned, he was part of the Salto First Nations people and was known around Saskatoon for small things like petty theft and drinking. So in news articles, Neil's brother Chris described Neil as fun-loving and caring. He also loved wrestling. And on November 29, 1990, he was found frozen to death in the northeast outskirts of Saskatoon by construction workers. It was negative 28 degrees Celsius out, so very, very cold weather, especially to us Southerners here in the U.S., but not uncommon to those who live in Saskatoon. And while finding a teenager in a remote area of the city was strange enough, what was even more bizarre was that Neil was found wearing only jeans, a light letterman jacket given to him by his brother Chris, and only one shoe. So the other shoe was not located at the scene of his death. So right away, that would raise some flags for me. If I'd grown up somewhere all my life, I would know the weather patterns pretty well. I'm going to assume that Neil would have never wandered to a remote part of town in November only wearing a light jacket and one shoe. Right, and I would assume the exact same thing. And if I was a police officer who was called to the scene once his body was found, I would be very suspicious of the entire scene. So nothing makes sense about a 17-year-old on the outskirts of town in that little bit of clothing in below freezing temperatures. So what happened once he was found? So once he was found, the Saskatoon Police Service opened an investigation that lasted a total of six days. I know your plan. Nope, six days. On December 5th, the investigation into Neil's death was closed with a determination that he died accidentally from hypothermia while trying to walk to an adult correctional center, which to me that also doesn't make sense because he was only 17. So, you know, I don't get why he was trying to walk to an adult jail. Yeah, nobody would ever be trying to walk there. That's in the middle of the night. Yes, exactly. The police report noted that there were visible injuries to his body, but no foul play was suspected. 
And normally I could see how this could be an open and shut case. I mean, we have a 17 year old kid who is known to hang out around town, maybe drinks a little too much and passes out in the cold and dies due to unfortunate circumstances. Like, yeah, sure. But Neil was in a remote part of town and wasn't even wearing winter clothing. And the fact that one of his shoes was missing is also the biggest red flag for me. Since he was so far away from the center of town, I can't imagine him walking that far with only one shoe. It just doesn't make sense when you also consider the injuries um, that were also found on his body. I definitely agree with you there. And if I was an investigator, something would seem off to me about this case. I think another good point to mention um, is the investigation actually closed before the Saskatoon Police Service received the official coroner's report and before his toxicology report was received for review. And if I was Neil's family, I would be very upset about the swiftness of closing his case without even trying to figure out how he ended up where he did and also how he died. I also read that a few witnesses had come forward that had seen Neil on the day he disappeared, and they were never formally interviewed by the police before the case was closed. Yeah, one of the craziest quotes that I read was cited in Dying from Improvement, which is a book by Shireen Razek. In the book, she quoted the investigating officer as saying, Yeah, the kid went out, got drunk, went for a walk, froze to death. I mean, the lack of compassion and humanity in the short-lived investigation is so apparent in this case. Neil was automatically painted as a vagrant teen drunk whose case wasn't given a second thought. And this may seem like we've reached the end of a very short podcast episode, um, but as the years carried on, more stories would actually come out of Indigenous men being found on the outskirts of town in freezing temperatures. And what's even more surprising is it all seemed to be at the hands of the Saskatoon Police Service and what would be known as the Starlight Tours. So with Neil Stonechild still in mind, let's fast forward 10 years to the year 2000. So Daryl Knight, who was a member of the Cree Nation, reported that he was drinking at his uncle's apartment when a fight broke out and the Saskatoon Police Force was called. Daryl said that he was arrested by two police officers who arrived at the apartment. However, instead of taking him into the police station for a night to sleep it off, Daryl said that two white police officers drove out to the edge of town, called him expletive words, slammed his face onto the trunk of the police cruiser, and then left him where he was at. Daryl recalls telling the officers that he would freeze if he was left out in that condition, and the cops told him that that was his problem. And one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that this incident with Daryl took place in January. So I looked up the weather for that day, and according to Weather Underground, it was below freezing the entire day, mostly in the negative digits. Much like Neil 10 years earlier, Daryl was only wearing a t-shirt, jeans, a jacket, and running shoes. No parka, no extensive outerwear to keep him warm, as we can assume he was not planning on being stranded miles out from the center of town that day. Wow, it's really horrifying to think that the police would drop someone off somewhere as a cruel punishment. It's even worse to realize they did it knowing how Daryl was dressed. I can't imagine leaving anyone in such little clothing and freezing temperatures anywhere, especially with the risk of hypothermia or death. I mean, that both could occur in a matter of minutes with how little clothing that he was wearing. Yeah, exactly. And how could officers who are sworn to serve and protect think that this is even okay? So when Daryl was recounting what happened, he reported saying, I thought I was dead, but something told me, 
don't give up. And after that, he did the only thing he could do. He began walking. He actually managed to make it to a power station where a watchman was stationed just outside the city. The power station was about two miles from where he was originally dropped off at. Once Daryl came forward with his story, other indigenous men all across Canada actually started sharing their stories about police officers who had committed similar heinous crimes as well. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of men who reached out to the Native Law Center, which was located at the University of Saskatchewan. One of my favorite quotes was from Sakish Henderson, who actually worked at the Native Law Center. In a Washington Post article, Sakish said, It's a very old practice to get rid of the Indian who was inebriated or mad, and if it wasn't for Daryl Knight, we would still be muddling around. We knew the people died suspiciously, but we could never get enough connecting evidence to say why they died. But with Daryl Knight, all of a sudden, the pattern was there. We could see it clear. Clear enough that the province had said, we need an inquiry. And it's crazy to think that what happened to Daryl wasn't an anomaly of just two bad cops, but one instance in a series of unreported events happening in Saskatchewan and other parts of Canada. So in the case of Daryl Knight, the two police officers who dropped him off were eventually identified. Their names were Dan Hatchin and Ken Munson. When Daryl first came forward with the story three days after it happened, the two officers were temporarily suspended with pay, which sounds a lot like America, and they were actually convicted of unlawful confinement a year and a half after the incident with Daryl in September of 2001. So during their trial, both Hatchin and Munson said that they weren't breaking any laws by dropping Daryl off where they did, and they did not consider it assault. Both men gave different accounts of what happened that night. Hatchett's defense attorney said that Daryl asked to be dropped off at the edge of town to avoid being arrested and charged. And to me, this is a very horrible defense. Even if Daryl had said that, which he claims that he did not, he was inebriated at the time. And if they really wanted to help him avoid getting in trouble, why on earth would you leave an intoxicated person with little clothing on in the middle of nowhere in freezing winter weather? The fact that they would think people would believe them also shows a level of arrogance that only officers who knew that they could get away with this kind of misconduct could possess. The prosecution in the trial called the watchman at the power plant Daryl walked to as a witness, as well as the driver of the taxi that took him back into the city from the power plant. The watchman as a witness confirmed that Daryl walked up, banging on the door, asking to be let in so he could use the phone to call for a taxi. As I mentioned, the power station was about two miles from where he was dropped off, and the watchman was hesitant. He did not believe Daryl's account that police officers had dropped him off so far out of town. Which, I mean, that's understandable. I mean, I would have a hard time believing that as well, especially thinking that officers should be serving in your best interest. I'm blinking, text- I'm blinking in indigenous right now. <laughs> I believe that this happened. I think I would have been like, come on in, bro. Like, let's chat. Well, I'm going to take go out on a limb here and assume that the watchman was probably not an indigenous person. That's probably um, true. The taxi driver was also able to corroborate his story. He confirmed what Daryl had said of being dropped off at his sister's house um, from the power station. And he gave the driver his jacket and health card to hold on to while he actually ran inside to get money from his sister to pay for the fare. So when he got back downstairs, he did remember to grab his jacket back from the driver, but the driver ended up keeping his health card. The fact that the driver still had the health card 
provided to be a crucial piece of evidence for his case. After the trial, both officers were fired from the police service and they were only sentenced to eight months in prison, which I think is absolutely absurd when they literally drove a man to what they hoped would be his death. And the maximum sentence they could have been given is 10 years. So only eight months for something that could have, you know, they could have been in jail for 10 years. In my opinion, they should have been charged with negligence and assault, considering the fact that Daryl was wearing so little clothing when he was dropped off and below freezing weather and was inebriated. And I would even add another charge to that. So I would add attempted murder because if you're inebriated in the first place, a lot of times you're not going to have like the mental presence to be able to like have maybe a sense of direction also we don't know does he know like where he's dropped off at did he just walk in the same direction that the police officers drove you know there's just like a lot of uh, extenuating circumstances to me and it did it does seem to me like they left him there with the purpose that he would die so to me it would be an attempted murder charge so i would even go even farther but i'm an extremist so but i think that this shows um, not only issues with the police officers, like these two police officers are not are not like the main problem here, but the justice system as a whole. And I was doing some research based on some of the information from a Washington Post article about these cases and a staggering 65% of prisoners in federal jails in Saskatchewan are indigenous and almost 77% of the prison population of provincial jails in Saskatchewan are indigenous 77% y'all. So as a reminder from earlier in the episode, only 16% of the population in Saskatchewan identifies as indigenous or first nations. So we're looking at a huge overrepresentation in the judicial system. So it begs the question, are indigenous people really committing more crimes or are they singled out more than any other group and subject to harsher punishment than non-indigenous folks in the province? Yeah, and I think this is where programs like those advocated for by the Native Law Center are so important. Creating community relations programs and encouraging Indigenous people to become lawyers to better advocate for their people. And honestly, the police services should have had more equal representation of Indigenous folks as officers as well. In the podcast, Criminal, um, they also covered this case um, in their episode called The Starlight Tours, and in it, host Phoebe Judge interviews former policeman Ernie Lutet, who was one of only three First Nations officers on the Saskatoon Police Service out of 350 officers at the time. So we're talking about less than 1% representation here. Ernie was one of the lead folks advocating from within to investigate the corruption and mistreatment of First Nations people by the Saskatoon Police Force, and for good reason. Because literally one day after Daryl was dropped off by the police service, the lifeless body of 25-year-old Rodney Nastis, another indigenous man, was found in the exact same area where Daryl was found. He was shirtless when he was found and there were no indications of foul play other than the fact that he was clearly outside of town and in too little clothing for the January weather. I think we can kind of see a pattern emerging here. And definitely a scary pattern, too. And knowing that this was just a day after what happened to Daryl, it had to be alarming to First Nation people who were living in Saskatoon. Yes, exactly. Like, if I was a First Nations person living in the area at the time, I would have such little trust for law enforcement. Although, I guess at that time, they didn't realize 
it was the place that was the connection to all these men, right? Or if they did, maybe they heard it as rumors and they weren't actually sure what to believe. Right. So Daryl went public with his story three days after being left in the cold. But get this. So just days later, on February the 2nd, 2000, another body was found once again in the same area where Daryl and Rodney had been dropped off. This time it was the body of 30-year-old student Lawrence Wegner. Yet again, Lawrence was not dressed to be out in the winter elements. He was found wearing a t-shirt, socks, and jeans. So not even shoes or a jacket like with the other cases. His family and friends had last seen him on January 31st, so he was found a full three days after that. But the investigation revealed that much like Rodney, Lawrence appeared to have died just hours after an encounter with the Saskatoon Police Service. So once these deaths were made public, the Minister of Justice for Saskatoon made a public inquest to establish their cause of death and figure out what happened. For both deaths of Lawrence and Rodney, the circumstances were considered inconclusive, which I think we can all call bull on right away. And in the case of Lawrence's death, it was ruled as hypothermia from prolonged exposure by undetermined means. Literally, the only thing recommended by the jury from the inquest was that the police officers should start making records and notebooks of the individuals when they took them into their vehicles. That was seriously their only recommendation, and it's not as if it was just these men who were found. 53-year-old Lloyd Dustyhorn, also First Nations, was found on January 19, 2000, just one day after being taken into police custody for public intoxication. Darcy Dean Ironchild was only 33 and was once again found dead after being taken into police custody for public intoxication. And this doesn't even scratch the surface of the stories that have not been reported or have not been investigated. And also, just to add another quick thing, it it infuriates me that the people who did the crime are also the same people who are investigating the crime that happened. It's of course you're not going to find fault with your own institution and with your own investigation. You're going to do everything that you can do to say that what you did was justified. So thinking about the recommendations that they, that they released, that's just BS to me. So yeah. Yeah. And it just makes you wonder how many unreported stories there are of the same thing happening um, to other family members of first nations people that lived in or around the Saskatoon area. You see, the cases that started sprouting up in 2000 about Daryl and Lawrence and Rodney and the subsequent inquest were gathering attention. So much attention that there was actually a 2002 explosive news article in the local paper, The Star Phoenix, which was written by Leslie Perot, that connected Neil's death with Knight's story. All of this evidence actually gathered so much attention that it led to another inquest a 2003 inquest into Neil's 1990 death. So Neil's mother actually knew there was more to the police's version of what happened to her son. So she was really happy that, you know, there was going to be a new inquest into the case. His mother, Stella Stonechild Bignell, never once believed the outcome of the original police investigation, stating that Neil simply died of hypothermia while trying to walk to an adult correctional center. Time and time again, though, the police denied that they ever abandoned Neil like others had been. See, what we left out at the beginning of our story about Neil is the reports of what actually happened on the night Neil was last seen alive. 
Stella and other family members shared reports from Neil's friend Jason Roy who said that on the night Neil went missing, they had been drinking together. Jason said on the evening of November 24th, the Saskatoon police were called to the Snowberry Downs apartment complex for disorderly conduct. While he had a vague memory of the entire interaction with the police, he distinctly remembers Neil in the back of a police cruiser bleeding and yelling, they're going to kill me. That was the last account of anyone seeing Neil alive. And Jason's account of what happened that night only intensified Stella's doubt of what happened to her son. And just like the questions we had about the clothes he was wearing, Stella could not fathom Neil being able to walk so far out of town and below freezing temperatures with only one shoe. Once Stella realized that Neil had actually not come home, she called the police looking for him and the dispatch passed her off to where people are usually held for intake and the guard simply said her son wasn't there and hung up. It wasn't until a couple of days later that the news reported a frozen body being found when a policeman showed up at her door to confirm that it was Neil who had died. Neil's aunt Deborah testified in the new inquiry into Neil's death that at the funeral home, Neil had so many bruises on his face and a large cut across his nose and cheek that they couldn't even hide it with makeup. His uncle Jerry also reported that he noticed Neil had bumps on his head and the skin around his wrist and hands were missing and there were visible scratches. Jerry made the assumption that Neil had been handcuffed at some point right before his death and was trying to pull off the handcuffs, which to me that makes sense because what Jerry was describing seems like very distinct injuries that might be associated with someone being handcuffed and trying to get rid of them. And I know that handcuffs can cause chafing and severe irritation around an individual's wrist. And it breaks my heart that the family had to see Neil like that and to have the police conduct such a thin investigation when obviously there had been foul play. I mean, he had bruises all over his face and these other different kind of injuries. So it's clear that he didn't just suffer from hypothermia. It's, you know, much more than that. And then again, this is a repeated pattern. So Mary Wegner, who was Lawrence Wegner's mother, said that during the inquiry, she retraced her son's steps that he took on a similar cold night. She realized just how little distance you could go in those elements with only a t-shirt and jeans. And then remember, he was wearing no shoes, only socks when he was found. Mary said that on the night that Lawrence went missing, he was wearing boots and an expensive winter jacket. Mary was upset that his case was never treated like a homicide. And when investigators looked into the scene where Lawrence was found, they left their footprints in the snow and tampered with the scene. And later, Sergeant Bob Peters did admit that the scene had been contaminated due to investigators' curiosity and lack of training. And it seems like the Saskatoon police force had excuse after excuse after excuse for what happened once these men were found, and little to no remorse. I think Mary Wegner's words I found in a Washington Post article were really powerful, and I wanted to share them with you all. When she reflected on Daryl Knight's incident with the police, she said, This was a human being. I don't know if they can sleep today. I read that one police officer who dropped off Daryl said his family was suffering. What are we? Stones? Do we not suffer? I just want to find out why they don't know. This is people they are hurting. That person, somebody loves them, cares for them. Maybe in their eyes, that person is no good. I wouldn't let anybody walk on a road when it is cold out, minus 28, biting wind. It's cold when it's cold here. You can just hear the pain in her voice when she talks about Daryl, who isn't even someone that she personally knew. 
Yeah, it's clear that these deaths, um, you know, they really kind of are all interconnected. So Daryl reported that after the incident with the Saskatoon Police Force, he actually moved back to the Salto First Nation Reserve. He said that he was afraid to go into Saskatoon and he didn't feel safe with cops in the city knowing who he was. I think this was all the more heightened as the inquiry into Neil's 1990 case continued as well. In 2003 and 2004, during the inquest, the report concluded that Neil had indeed been picked up by police officers as his friend and other folks had reported, and that the officers had failed to record the interaction in their logbook. Based on the photos and testimony from Neil's family, the report also concluded that the marks on his wrist and cut across his nose could have been from handcuffs as they suspected. The two officers involved were actually still part of the police service all those years later. Larry Hartwig and Brian Singer were fired, and the official conclusion of the inquiry was that the relations between police and First Nations are problematic. Like, yeah, no kidding, you're basically committing murder and sweeping it under the rug. There's no justice in that. The conclusion of the inquiry also said that there was not enough adequate evidence to expressly say what the circumstances were surrounding Neil's death all those years later. I think considering there was a name for this practice, the Starlight Tours, and there was evidence of it happening to other First Nation folks, that both Larry Hartwick and Brian Singer should have faced criminal charges in Neil's case, as the officers in Daryl's case did. And I read that even to this day, both officers deny any wrongdoings and involvement in Neil's death and have appealed their firings, but their firings were upheld. So as we wrap up the stories of all of these men, I think it's important to note the underlying themes that we keep seeing time and time again of systematic racism in our judicial system. I think for many of us in the United States, it's something that we're aware of in our own justice system. And I think sometimes we idealize Canada as a friendlier country than the United States that has affordable health care and is more welcoming of immigrants. But at the end of the day, the original people, our indigenous brothers and sisters, are still being grossly mistreated. I encourage everyone listening to review the official report released on Neil's death in 2004. It's 380 pages long, so don't let that intimidate you, but just browsing through it gave me some insight into how cases like this are handled, and I'll warn you, there are photos of Neil at the end of the report from the crime scene and a couple of autopsy photos in case you're sensitive to that, but we'll link the report on our website. And the report contains some pretty comprehensive guidelines for the Saskatoon Police Service. So as of 2014, police cruisers have video surveillance and GPS. There's also an independent body that investigates complaints against the police, which is the Saskatchewan Public Complaints Commission. The number of Indigenous police officers on the force has also increased uh, dramatically as well. I think one of the other things to consider is the use of smartphones and social media. So many people, Indigenous or not, are less likely to tolerate racism and injustices. We're reaching a place where we will call it out very quickly, which I am a fan of. See something, say something. Yes. I can only yeah. I can only think about how many lives could have been saved from the Saskatoon Police Services if we had some of the representation we as indigenous people have created for ourselves with social media over the last decade or so. Today we challenge you to speak up in the face of injustices just as Daryl Knight did in two thousand. His story helped bring life back to Neil Stonechild's case and made Rodney Nastis and Lawrence Wagner's cases more than just accidental deaths from hypothermia. 
Their families all deserve so much more than what little justice came from the inquiry set forth by Daryl Knight. These men deserved more. If there are other stories similar to this one you'd like to share, I encourage you to reach out to us via social media or on our website, and please tune in next week as we cover our next case. <laughs>